Welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is Andrew Horn, who's going to talk to us about social impact, how to raise investment money for your brilliant project. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Welcome back to the Radical Brilliance podcast, episode number 12. Today's guest is Andrew Horn, who is actually the husband of Mickey Agarwal, who you heard from in episode number four. So Andrew is right now working on a book called Social Flow. And Social Flow is actually born out of his own struggle with feeling socially awkward, which many of us know. In other words, feeling tongue-tied, tense, sort of out of sync with other people in a social situation and not knowing how to move that forward. And social flow tends to get blocked more when you're looking for a certain outcome. Let's take a simple example, um, which I think everyone can understand, is when you were, when you were first dating, you know, when you were a teenager. Now, you'll have to translate this whether you're a boy or a girl or whether you were a boy or a girl when you were dating. But, you know, if you... As a young boy or a young girl, if you meet uh, somebody who you feel just could be a cozy friend, somebody as a, who, who has the right gender to be a potential partner, but could equally just be a cozy friend, you're probably going to be in high level of flow, right? So I'm a, I'm a guy. If I met a girl um, when I was 16 or 17 who didn't really feel like girlfriend material, just felt really kind of cool and nice, we could have a great time go to the movies, have a good laugh, you know. She could tell me the kind of boyfriend she's looking for. I could think through my friends and vice versa, and there would be flow. If, however, she became potential girlfriend material for me, if I thought she was really beautiful and attractive and wow, then can you see that there would be more tension would arise, right? Because there's, an, there's a desired outcome now which makes the whole thing a little more tense and awkward. So that's what we're talking about when there is a blockage to social flow because the stakes become higher. So in today's conversation, we're going to focus on the example of an entrepreneur wanting to raise money, which is actually, if you've ever done that, if you've ever been somebody with a great project that you think could really help people, but you need more money, boy, oh boy, oh boy, is that a situation where social flow gets blocked. So um, be interesting for you to hear this. And uh, Andrew talks us through how you, can, uh, how you can introduce more flow, more ease into a situation like that. Um, he's going to particularly focus on fundraising for an entrepreneur, which is a great thing we all need to do. If you've got a great project to change the world, that's what Radical Brilliance is all about. If it needs money, you may get very tense in thinking about how to raise money. All right, then. So... Let's move into our conversation with Andrew Horn, talking about social flow, particularly focusing on fundraising. And I will get back with you at the end of the conversation.
Andrew, my brother, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to Brooklyn, my man. Hey, it's, a, it's, it's really great to be doing this in your home. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it's uh, the whole thing is kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's like, like, a, like a tortoise, you know, it's, it's Andrew and then extended Andrewness and Mickeyness all around and Hero-ness. That's where you got the hearts and the flowers and the colorful art everywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is very much who you are. So, my man, you, you're working now on a book called Social Flow, right? It's just, that's, that's coming up. Who knows? By the time some, somebody gets around to listening to this, it may be out. Hmm. So give us a little taste of what, what you mean by social flow and, and why it's actually so pivotal to somebody wanting to make a difference in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I worked my way back into social flow. Um, and the reason that I want to write this book is because for most of my life, I struggled with social anxiety, social discomfort. You real did. It's hard to imagine. Inability that. to get up in front of an audience and speak clearly and just feel confident in my own skin. And um, initially in my career, I wanted to feel more confident. I wanted to be feel more capable of talking about the projects I was running, whether that was a nonprofit, for-profit company. And so I started to study the dynamics of effective communication. I started to understand how to nail your pitch. I started to study how to give a TED Talk. I started to understand all of these techniques and tools that you could use to package your ideas and ask better questions and all these other things. And even though I became more effective as a communicator, I still felt this innate insecurity, this mm. discomfort in my own skin, this mm. lack of trust uh, really of my instincts. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was only about three years ago when I started studying this modality called Gestalt yeah. that I experienced the raw power of becoming clear on who I was, mm. what I was thinking and feeling, what I wanted to know about people and mm. how I wanted to show up in social situations. And when I allowed myself to just harness those internal instincts and share them transparently with the world, mm. I saw some really powerful things. First, I was impacting the people who I wanted to connect with, who I wanted to sell to in a much more efficient and effortless manner. And also I just felt so much more ease. Hmm. So I realized that, you know, there's a book out called the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And I think hmm. that if that book is, which is incredible is social flow is about giving all the right fucks. Mm -hmm. It's a three question framework that you can use in any social situation to harness your intrinsic motivation to connect to communicate. And so those three questions are, how do I want to show up? Mm -hmm. Are, what do I want to know? Mm -hmm. And what do I want to share? Mm -hmm. And if you are just clear on what those things are, that is enough to exist in any given moment mm -hmm. with what is real for you right then and there. And we built up a whole process about how to eliminate limiting beliefs that get in the way of you trusting those intrinsic motivators to connect. And ultimately, it is, it is about not just succeeding with people, not just getting things done, whether that's raising money, which I hope we can talk a little more about today. Let's do it. Yeah, for sure. But it's about how to feel good on the way to getting there, mm. how to just get more in touch with who we are mm -hmm. and how we want to be in social situations and allowing ourselves to show up that way. Mm. So that's what social flow is. So I think some people are going to be listening to this and, <clears throat> and saying, great, yes, I, I know all about I, I, I recognize what you're saying as social flow, but some people are going to listen to this and feel, uh, uh, you know, I wish I had that, right? Um, and it's actually, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, this is term misfit, right? 
and uh, I think we could jam on that a little bit, you know, because many people get born into this world and just like, what, where am I? <laughs> what kind of bizarre zoo have I ended up locked into, you know? Uh, the, the way the world operates, the way the world operates financially, the way the world operates in separation, in prejudice, in us against them, punitively. I mean, just look right now as we're sitting here today in early 2019, look, look at the way Washington's operating. It's like, how did we get there? So I think many younger people get born into this world and just feel like, what planet am I on? And then they don't know how to operate, partly because their own intrinsic values just seem to be completely at odds with what they see around them. So many people don't have that feeling of social flow. Um, and I've seen people deal with that in different ways. Some people just avoid kind of, you know, the sort of, uh, social context where there's more of a chit-chat, hey, how you doing? Avoid that, go for like one-on-one. -on -one. Some people just avoid everybody just because they... My, my wife's a little like this. My wife just says, I don't know how to do small talk. She's an amazing being, but she requires a level of depth to be able to even open her mouth. So she doesn't know... She says she, she can't go to a party because she doesn't know how to do small talk, you know? Mm. So let's talk about, you know, somebody who doesn't have a sense of social flow because where they instinctively want to go is so much deeper than where we usually interact. Yeah, I think that for so many people, and this was certainly true for me, is I had this subconscious belief mm. that I needed to be a certain way, I needed to be something to be loved, to be liked. And for so many people... We've been ingrained in that, you know, it's like so much of life is just grade school repeating itself, mm. but there was a cool group and you wanted to be a part of that and yeah. then moved into high school, into college and the cool kids did things a certain way. And so you wanted to do things a certain way so you could belong to that group. And like as humans, one of our most fundamental needs is just to belong, to feel connected and we'll do so much, almost anything to feel that connection. And for so many of us, we sacrificed our essence, who we really are, our most authentic self, to create some sort of per perception from the outside of the world, to create a facade of belonging. And I think, again, what, I, what I've learned through this process and what I've seen with the companies and the clients that I work with is that um, something really miraculous happens when we get in touch with that essence, with our innate curiosity, with our innate authenticity and the intention that we want to bring into moments, is that when we release the need to create any sort of external result or external perception mm. um, and we focus on just bringing that most authentic self into the world is that we end up achieving the types of results that we would want externally. Yeah. We start spending less time with the people who don't actually connect with us. Mm -hmm. And so the moment that we stop needing other people to see us a certain way yeah. And we start needing to express the authentic version of ourselves, the world changes. And that's been one of the biggest shifts in my life of really this shift in values from understanding that at the top of the pyramid, when it comes to social dynamics, it's that I need to be true to myself. And whether that works with people or not, it's certainly nice when it lands, when a talk goes amazing or when someone says yes to an investment pitch. Yes. But at the end of the day, yeah. I have to be authentic to myself. Right. 
And there's so many other benefits that come along with that shift in values. Well, I'm, my brain's just sparking, right? My brain always sparks a lot when I talk to you and Mickey and Rada because you've just, and your mother, you know, you've, you, all of you, you've just got this way of provoking people to think and to disrupt, think of things in a new way. So I'm seeing, you know, what you're describing, I'm, I'm realizing that's very much true when you're single. Uh, if, you, if you go to a party and you're single, uh, and you really feel a lack of something in your life, you really need somebody to make your life whole, that almost becomes a repeller towards real connection. Yeah. But if you go to a party and, you know, you're, maybe you've just fallen in love, but your partner's not there, uh, you become magnetic. So not needing is magnetic, and needing actually repels. So, and I noticed that about you, because <clears throat> you, you've talked about in your past, you've had this kind of social anxiety, I think you said, right? Sure. But I actually, the, the degree to which you don't have that now is really actually remarkable. I mean, it's, it's, it's at, a, at a higher level than many people. And I'm thinking particularly last November, you and I, we were both at Summit, the Summit Gathering, which mm-hmm. is one of the most, I mean, could potentially be a very intimidating place to be. Sure. You know, if you've got something to prove to people, it's a very intimidating place to be. A, for those who don't know, it's 3,000 odd people gather together. Uh, with the likes of, um, you know, I, I bumped into Ken Robinson, you know, in the corridor kind of thing, you know, and there was, I mean, Al Gore was there. Um, Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle, yeah. Who, and who was this guy from the, from the ex, ex, ex Peter Diamante. Peter Diamante, yeah, yeah. So just incredible, yeah. you know. And so I noticed a really interesting thing about you, which I think is perhaps slightly indicative of what you're talking about. A lot of people were just cruising around and they were in this area called the Orchard where everybody would meet everybody. You went off to an area called the Haven, which was a little off to the side, and and you just stayed there most of the day. And you said, no, I just sit in one place and let people come to me. It's very interesting. I mean, it's of course, that's physically about where you were sitting at that event, Mm. but it seems to me it was symptomatic of an attitude to life. I just sit in one place, you know, sit in, sit in a place where I'm feel at home and let people come to me. Yeah. And it's, I can't take full credit for that because I have to give credit to my father Mm. who created this technique in the Costco parking lot while we were growing up. And when we would sit in front of the store and he would just park there and wait for somebody to leave as opposed to driving up and down, he's like, it's the same thing. Like a spot's going to open up here just as soon as it's somewhere else. And so I just call it the Costco parking lot. It's uh-huh. like you can go around and you'll find a spot mm. or you can just stay here and you'll find a spot. Right. You right. know what I mean? Mm. And your belief that something important is out there versus coming right here is just a story. Yeah. And so I just mm-hmm. allow myself to just be there mm. because naturally I am more introverted and I don't even know if I would actually use that term as much anymore. I'm just conditioned into saying that I just enjoy intimacy more than large events. It's where I feel energized. So actually Mm -hmm. I'm not a fucking introvert. That's stupid to say that I am, I'm extroverted, but I prefer more intimate social settings. Yeah. And so, you know, in that way of being in one of the large centers where there's a ton of people, I find that those conversations then balloon into six, eight people. Whereas when I sit at the Haven, Hmm. it just tends to be smaller groups of, you know, two to four people. Right. And so I just understand the dynamics that exist where I feel most energized by people and I can try and create those. And that's kind of what I was doing there. And, you know, it was interesting is when I talk about having dealt with 
social anxiety and shyness and discomfort. So this year I was actually speaking mm-hmm. on team communication at Summit Series. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell a story about what was so funny is because in 2010, I was at that very event. I was pitching my nonprofit to 20... In 2010? In 2010. Oh, a long time before, so yeah. pitching my nonprofit uh, to 20 venture philanthropists and individual donors and was filled with this imposter syndrome, this sense of who am I to be in a room of Ted Turner and Blake Mykoski from Tom's and was so nervous about how I was being perceived by others, what they thought about what I had to say, that I remember just sweating bullets in those sessions. I was so down on myself, so uncomfortable in my own skin. Mm. I ended up leaving the conference halfway through in the first day. Did you really? And it was only this grit and real belief in what I was doing that got me back the next day. And I'm so grateful I did because mm. I met one of our first major investors, a guy named Yannick Silver, who you know Oh, I know well. Yannick, yeah. And, he invested uh, in, in, in what? Uh, in Dreams for Kids, my oh, first right. yeah, 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 my children's yeah. nonprofit. That yeah, did that, that makes sense for him. Sure. And then what I always say to people, so I got to give that talk while I was at Summit Series about, you know, again, that even today when I talk about, um, you know, moving, so turning social anxiety into social flow is that it is not the absence of shyness and social anxiety of actually like we can just take a breath and anytime that we feel a tightness in our stomach, anytime we feel an anxiety when we're in the company of people, our first instinct is to interpret that as though something is wrong mm. or something is dangerous. For sure. Whereas one of the most simple shifts that we can do is just to say to ourselves, this is important. Yeah. Or I'm, Great. Ex- I'm Great. excited. Great. Yeah. Which Great. is also true. Right. Right. And so anytime I say that, I'm like, oh, you're excited. Yeah. So now I've just reshaped my relationship to it. And again, I call it social flow because it's based on the principles of creating flow states, these peak states of performance. And if you look at athletes, if you look at dancers, when do they tap into flow states? It's not mostly when they're in practice. It's usually when they're in a game and it's the fourth quarter or it's the Olympics and they're competing. And so to create these optimal states of performance where time ceases to exist and you're just there to do it, pressure is actually a good thing. Yeah. So the fact that you care mm. is actually a beautiful thing. And so it's not the absence of these things. Mm. It's reframing our relationship with them so that they serve us. Yeah. Whenever I get up on stage and I'm getting ready to go and keynote, give a keynote presentation, I'll get butterflies in my stomach and I just say to myself, fuck yeah. Yeah. What a treat. Yeah. You get to do this thing that you yeah. care so much about. Right. And it's true. And then that's energy that now I get to turn into me just going out and sharing what I want to share. We have a mutual friend, you and I. And I don't know if I mentioned to you, she's coming over here tomorrow, Alana. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a mutual friend. And, and Alana, she's managed to distill everything that's important in life down to the word fuck. Right. Which actually has a lot of wisdom to it. There's a little bit of shock value, you know. Sure. But, but like actually everything is about fuck. The, the, the thing about fuck is that it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a word about sex mm. and that belongs in the context of two people attracted to each other. Statistically more often a man and a woman, but could be any mixture. Sure. Right. And, but actually that what happens in sexual attraction and the, the, the exact dynamics of what happens in from the first modus, noticing to the flirting to the getting closer to actually getting into the fuck. 
that sequence of is very is, you can see that mirrored in all kinds of things in life that you, sure. you start to feel a little tremor of energy yeah. it builds it builds into an intensity the more it builds into intensity the more excited you get the more aroused you are the more you've got on the line you know so like if you go to a party and you see somebody who's just kind of you feel comfortable with yeah. there's going to be low excitement low attraction and probably low fulfillment right yeah. in, in, but if you see if you look at somebody that you, I can remember when I was young the girl that I was most attracted to at the party I would not even speak to mm -hmm. and I would studiously avoid her because she was too it was too terrifying yeah. you know so that's what you're talking about there to, to me you know is, is when that fear increases it's also where there's the most juice yeah so I think somebody said excitement is fear with breath Hmm. Right or or fear is excitement without breath. Hmm. Beautiful, I love it. If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole Radical Brilliance cycle. You'll have an accountability partner in another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself into the source of your own creativity and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own radical brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab. So what do you want to know? <laughs> what do I want to know? I'm happy to be here with you. Let's let's uh, talk about social flow in the context of raising money. Okay, uh, and I'm going to be I'm going to put my cards on the table. That uh, I'm as we're doing this interview right now. We are in the process of developing the Radical Brilliance project. Sure. We're in the middle of a raise right now, so I'm faced with all the discomfort around. You know, it's a friends and family kind of angel investor round. So yeah. I'm faced with the discomfort of entering into conversations with people I like who are my friends, who I have another relationship with as well, to see if they want to put money in. Totally. Right. So, and I was remarking to you earlier when we were getting coffee that my experience of asking people to put money into something worthwhile is not so different than my experience used to be years ago of asking a girl to dance sure. or to date. You know, I'm a good guy. I'm, in a, I'm a nice person. I mean, it's not, it's not like I'm trying to... I'm asking her for a date with a psychopath, you know, or at least not a really advanced psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm asking for a date with somebody who I have cultivated to be the best person he can be. Yeah. So in the same way, when, you, when you've got a company, 
you're asking an investor to invest in something that you've done your best to make good, and yet it's extremely awkward and difficult for most people wanting to do good, wanting to do good in the world, and wanting to, you know, wanting to shift from toilet paper to squirting your bum, or yeah. wanting to shift to better ways of having sanitary protection, or all the, or, or wanting to shift into many things, wanting yeah. to disrupt in many ways. You have an idea that's positive; it's going to make the world a better place should be a joyful thing to ask people to finance it and yet it's very awkward often so let's let's talk about how social flow applies to raising money yeah absolutely you know i think social flow is is so important for raising money because whether it's someone who is an entrepreneur like myself or like you whether that is a non-profiteer who's championing a cause that's mm -hmm. important in the world that they believe in whether that's someone who works at a major corporation and is simply seeking money to fund a project that's important to them and their team um you know, we spend so long on projects and the reality of business today is that the success of that project can come down to a single conversation or email or interaction. And so understanding how we want to show up and what we want to share to maximize our time and really win buy-in is such an essential thing. And so uh, for me, social flow is, again, about reframing our focus from mm -hmm getting this person to say yes, which mm -hmm. is the result that we want, getting them to invest. And instead, we reshape our focus on what we love about this business, what is the importance and what is the need that this is feeling in the world. So connecting ourselves to a personal sense of purpose and passion. Because ultimately, raising money is, you said, joyful. Mm. Raising money fucking sucks for the most part. Well, it's exactly. Fun, but, but it's not a fun part of the process, but yeah. it's such a purposeful, essential one of like, yeah. we've created 150,000 tributes and that's happened because we raised $1.5 million. So it's like, did I enjoy it? No, but am I so psyched after having done it that we did it? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that what's allowed me to persevere and what's so important to start here is that purpose piece of just understanding why do I care about this project? What is the impact that it is going to have in the world of connecting yourself to something bigger than you wanting to do something but saying this is fundamentally going to help people. And when you can say that now you're a part of a project, so you're not asking for money for you. You're asking for money for a cause, for a movement, for mm -hmm. a group of people. Mm -hmm. That initially makes it so much easier. And then the second thing, again, is when you go into a situation where you are asking for money, you need to be so clear. I'm going to frame this as a startup pitch so that it's a little we can speak more specifically, is that you need to understand more so than anything else, what am I asking for and how is it going to benefit you? What is the return? So when you go into any single meeting, you have to make yourself believe as the entrepreneur that there is a potential for this person to earn a return. Mm -hmm. And that is what you need to articulate more so than anything else. Because as soon as you can convince yourself and say, you're going to be investing 25%, you're getting a fifth of a percent of the company over the next three to five years. You're going to be investing 25% or grand. 25 grand. Yeah. yeah I'm okay. just saying, I'm just yeah. throwing out random numbers yeah, here, yeah. but you need to make yourself believe mm -hmm. in the potential for a return for your investors. Right. Because if you can do that for yourself, if you can do those numbers on the page mm -hmm. and make yourself believe it, then going into a conversation with someone else, now you're just sharing what you already know. You're not trying to convince them. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an actual opportunity that you've worked out for yourself. You've made yourself believe. Mm -hmm. And now you get to share 
that same dialogue you worked out with yourself with an investor. So understanding what is the practical return that they're going to get. Before you do anything else, you have to make yourself believe. And it's not that this is a sure thing because startups are not a 100% sure thing. It's about the potential of return and that there is a reliable or somewhat of a chance for a return. So you start with those two things, with purpose, with understanding what is the practical return and articulating so clearly what you're asking for and what they want. And next, when it comes down to the bare bones of actually articulating a pitch, it's, I don't need to get so deeply into this, but it's just understanding the, the fundamental bones, which is use Guy Kawasaki's pitch deck, which is just 10 simple slides, which are going to help you to articulate what is the team? What is your market? What is your promise? What is your secret sauce? How much are you asking for? What are their projections? So it's going to walk you through 10 simple slides, which is just you articulating the basic, most fundamental information for someone to understand your business. But I'm going to tell you why that is only 50% of the battle, because you need the information so someone understands your business, but information is not enough for someone to decide to pick you. For someone to decide to pick you, they need emotion. And the way to connect people to the emotion of your business is through story. And so that's where we bridge, is to start with that information piece, to have all of that really kind of boil down, and then to understand that when you are sending someone a pitch deck or materials, your goal is not for them to understand every aspect of the business. Your goal is one thing, pique their interest. Only enter the stuff into a pitch deck that they won't stop reading. Because as soon as you give an investor an excuse to stop reading, they will. Mm -hmm. And if you look at any of the data about pitch decks and how much time people spend on them, you know, I've put hours and hours into our deck and that's normal. But the average amount of time that someone looks on it before they decide they want to do it. Let me guess, is three minutes? Even less, it's like two minutes. So they're banging through these things and all they want to see is some very simple things like, oh, this looks interesting. It's, they don't need to say enough. They don't need to see enough information. No one's going to write you a check because of a pitch deck. Someone's going to get on the phone. And so that reframe is so important when you're creating a pitch deck. Only put the stuff in there that they're going to keep reading through to the end. Right. And your only goal is to get on the phone, is to get a meeting in person. No one's going to give you cash through a pitch deck. Exactly. Just not how it works. And then when you move beyond that, you know, so much of, of social flow is just kind of, again, navigating our internal experience so that we can share that with others. And so inside each of us, we have these signature stories, which is the most effective way to convey the emotionality of our business. And this is the story of either why we were inspired to create this business or how an individual has benefited from our business. And it's so important that you have this boiled down to a single person. It cannot be a million people that you have provided a service to because then it's just a statistic and people have no emotional connection. It's a single person why you started your company or how someone has already benefited. So when I was... In- let's, let's just stop there for a minute. So yeah. that's why you started your company or how someone benefited. I want to just draw attention to those. That Those are two important and different stories. Right? 100%. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to have both of those if you can. But when you're introducing a business to an investor, you're really only going to have time for one initially. And so yeah. whatever the one is that is most compelling. Yeah. Um, and so for us, when I would talk about this business and where it came from, because everyone wants to know, where did you start the business? Why did you start the business? You know, I walked into my 
my my apartment on my 27th birthday mm. and I swing the door open and my wife has 25 of my closest friends there will jump out for a surprise party halfway through the party she puts this TV this on is the five w- years ago this is five years ago now oh and you, how long have you been married to Mickey uh, well, we got married last year, but we've technically been married for eight years if you count our Burning Man wedding and three right. days after. Got it, eight each years. Other. Perfect. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mickey's also a guest on this podcast and is stunningly amazing. Yeah, yeah. she's great and pretty cute too. Yes. Um, <laughs> where was I? So I was basically I walked into my apartment and then she puts this video on the TV on the wall and I sit in the back of the room and I'm like, "What's happening?" How many people were there? So about 25 were there, and, and then without saying anything, Mickey hits play on this video that she had set up on this TV. Mm-hmm. And, so uh, Mickey. <laughs> so without, Mickey to do that. Without knowing what was happening, I start to see my father pop on the screen and tell me why he loves me. I start to see my mom telling me how grateful she is that I worked with her in her business. I see my friend Matthew call me his best friend for the first time. Mm. And I realize <laughs> that I'm watching my eulogy at 27, essentially. <laughs> right. And... You know, I sit in the back of the room, I'm just bawling my eyes out. <laughs> and I realized, like, wow, this is the most meaningful gift I've ever received. And so yeah. I sit back there for 25 minutes watching these videos. I come out of it, I look at Mickey, I was like, how did you do this? And she looks back and she says, well, it sucked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, 15 hours of emailing people hundreds of times, collecting videos through Dropbox, Drive, editing everything together in iMovie. It was a terrible experience. So... Right there, I said, well, this is the best thing I've ever received, and it sucks to create, so I'm going to turn this into (laughs) an actual thing. (laughs) And so, you know, right there, I've shown someone the power of the gift Mm -hmm. because I showed how deeply impacted I was by it. it. I showed the problem, how difficult it is to create. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I can bridge, and I can introduce a market and say, like, did you know that Hallmark is an $8 billion company losing a $500 million cap every single year because their audience is going away? They don't have any digital projects. Like, did you know that video gifts are going to be a $26 billion industry moving into 2025. And um, we we have an opportunity to create Hallmark of the Digital Age, a place where people go to share their meaningful appreciation, love, gratitude using digital communication. So I think the question that comes up, you know, with, with um, social flow in this way is you, you, somebody can, an entrepreneur can identify the, 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 the gap in the market the potential mm. but then comes the question of well, why me you know, why? okay so I get I get that this is a great opportunity why should I choose you to fill it so in your case with what you just told me okay I get this why are you the guy to fill that gap yeah I mean and we could get technical and talk about you know a, a team slide that actually articulates industry knowledge and technical knowledge for a specific product and I think that that's incredibly important if you have it usually with most people that I work with they are not domain experts they're going to need to hire out for that whatever it might be and so I come back to why people are going to invest in you if you look at the number one characteristics that defines whether entrepreneurs whether small businesses are successful it's grit yeah, it's perseverance. perseverance. Yeah, and yeah. I, and what gives someone the ability to persevere? I don't think grit is like an inherent quality of people. I think it's people who are actually connected to a sense of purpose, a calling, of actually understanding why this thing is so important to them. And I love the quote that discipline is doing what we want most, not what we want right now. And so when you have a sense of purpose of like this is why this is an expression of my being. This is why this is going to help people I care so much about that you're willing to sacrifice in the moment because you understand that 
this is what you want most. And that kind of perspective is so powerful for going through because anyone who's going to raise money is going to get no 90% of the time. Yeah. Say that again, man. So I think a lot of people need to hear that. Again, anyone who's raising money is basically just 90% of the time they're going to hear no. Did you say that 90% is really really realistic? You can expect if you pitch to nine to 10 people, nine will say no. I mean, that's my my experience. Certainly subjective based on the idea. But I think that it's also about reshaping our relationship with no. It's like one of the things that I think is so important, again, is once you're able to articulate an opportunity to yourself, then you can transition raising money. It's not asking for money. You're inviting people into an opportunity. Yes. And it's it's true. It's that if you think there's a real potential Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. for a monetary return, Mm -hmm. if it's doing some good in the world that you can speak to, Mm -hmm. then you're not just asking for money for you're inviting them to be involved in an opportunity. And people who are investing money, they want to make a return and they want to be in part they want to be a part of cool shit. Yeah. And if you can lay out that case for them, you're on your way. As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the brilliant cycle. This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. You can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab. So let's just pinpoint that for a minute. You said it's not just asking for money. It's inviting people to an opportunity. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's kind of it's good to put that in our, in our show notes. You know? yeah. It's not just asking people for money it's inviting people to an opportunity let's break that down and let's think of a young entrepreneur talking to an investor right or let's imagine let's flip it the other way let's think think there's an investor there and he's going to get pitched three times today right the first time he gets pitched it's someone who's just asking for money and their behavior is consistent with that yeah second time it's in the middle of the third time he gets pitched by somebody who's not just asking for money but inviting them to an opportunity what would be different about the speech and the behavior of somebody who's got that piece versus somebody who hasn't. I think it's it's a one of my favorite quotes about this is uh, comes from a guy from Greylock Investors, and when asked what is the quality that you look for in your uh, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and he said the aura of inevitability. In other Someone, words, in other words, this this can't not happen. 
the aura of inevitability as someone who goes into a meeting and says, look at what's about to happen Mm -hmm. and look how cool it is. Mm -hmm. And then someone else who goes in and says, we're looking for 300 K to do this. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a different framing. Yeah. And it's just, again, it's like the emotionality that you're bringing into a room is what people are going to pick up. And so just those words and that shift and what it brings about in the the person, the picture is so important as you go into those rooms. Beautiful. so. So that's a great point that you could say, you could say, you know, as you did with, with, um, tribute, you could say people are not going to be buying physical greetings cards in Safeways so much anymore when they can do amazing stuff online. So that's going to happen no matter what. Now, are we going to ride that wave or ignore it? Yeah. So one of the ways that I, one of the ways that I think people can create this is, and this is how we, we started framing it and we were getting really good with the, with the pitch, you know, like right towards the tail end of how many people did you pitch to altogether? Oh man, probably 150. (laughs) You've had a, you've had a, yeah, it's been five years. You've had a fundraising conversation with 150. I just want to just take a minute and just think about all the no's you had to live. Sure. And then, and then when you think about what we would say is, um, Hallmark mm-hmm. of the future is not a physical greeting card company. It exists online of like the need for people to share their love and appreciation on meaningful occasions yes. is not going away. Yeah. And so what I would say to investors is where do you think people are going to be doing that in mm-hmm. 10 years? Yeah. Is it going to be physical cards right. or is it going to be video yeah. and digital greetings? And I would say to them, this is not a matter of when will this happen? It's a matter of whether you think we're the team to build it. So So I'm saying it's a matter of, so again, when I think about the inevitability of, Mm -hmm. look, this trend is happening. Mm -hmm. This industry will exist. Mm -hmm. You're just making a judgment call of whether or not you think we're the team to build it. Great. So again, it adds a level of certainty that we're creating in the moment. I'm just thinking of one of my clients who I'm helping uh, to radically redefine the healthcare field and what he's noticing is you know healthcare has in a way improved yeah. through better and better machines more and more efficient procedures that are conducted by specialists yeah. but of course there's been a price to pay with that which is less heartful contact you know because now you're not going to it used to be you know 50 years ago you almost entirely went to one gp who yeah. sort of who sort of generally knew about health but you went now the GP sees you for a very short time and refers you to a specialist to whom you're just really uh, another case passing through. Sure. So, that, so actually, in his case, you know, he, the, the dehumanizing of medicine is an inevitable byproduct of this increase in specialization and optimization. So, and it's inevitably going to cause some... Um, feeling of of lack or loss in people. So what are we going to do about it? That's uh, I. So what I would say there is that I would say the dehumanization of medicine to me doesn't speak to dollar signs. So what I would want to know is uh, what is the impact mm. on patients mm. when doctors spend less time. So if you were to show a trend here, so if you want to talk about what the, you're just teeing this up for me, so I'll get right into it. So when you think about how to showcase 
the the need for what you're working on. Um, think about shocking statistics. Mm. So whatever your industry is, whether that is modern medicine, whether that is the amount of time that doctors spend with patients, whether that is digital gifting and e-commerce, whatever your industry is, just go ahead and go to Google and type in shocking statistics about X. (laughs) And what you want to find... Literally shocking statistics. Literally shocking statistics about X. Like, do this. If you haven't done this for your company, this is how you show someone that a market is going to exist. And basically Mm -hmm. what you're looking for is you are looking for concrete numbers that show either the size of an opportunity of like how much money is spent on this specific industry every single year. You want to look at a shift in a trend. So I want to say that the largest greeting company in the world, $500 million market cap being gone every single year. So you want to look at the scope, uh, the size of an opportunity. You want to look at a shift in the trend. You want to look to the urgency of a need. So if people are dying, if healthcare costs are skyrocketing, you want to point to what is actually happening. So you want to use concrete statistics that speak to what is happening. And then for investors, they want to understand, okay, so if GPs are spending less time with patients and that's dehumanizing care, bummer, where's the money in that? And you need to make it so clear for them. And so what I'd be looking for for him of like, how do you tie the dehumanization of care into a stark drop off of the actual impact of care? You know, whether that's leading to more recidivism and people coming back into the the healthcare system, which is costing them more money eventually. But you need to make it so clear about why that relates to dollars. It's not enough to just show that something sucks if you can't tie it back to how that's actually having an impact from a financial standpoint. Excellent. And so one, and then, I mean, one thing I really want to say here as well is because you talked about earlier the idea of, of two people coming into an investor's office and, and there's one who's asking and there's one who's inviting. And I would even go a step beyond that is that there's a big differentiation between those two people, but the, the entrepreneur who's going to stand out is going to be the one who asks that investor questions is that Hmm. one of the the telltale signs of a green entrepreneur is someone who doesn't know how to ask an investor questions. Mm -hmm. It just shows that you've never been there before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so one of the things, and this is one of the core tenets of social flow, is understanding that I'm not only going in here to share what I'm excited about, what I'm on fire about, what I want to invite this person to, but asking yourself, what do I most want to know about this person? Mm. And so this is, if I'm going into an angel fund, if I'm working with an investor, what are all the questions that I want to understand about him? Because again, if you are an, if you're an investor and every single person that sees you every day is just pitching you, that is a one way soliloquy. It's not a dialogue. It doesn't lead to real connection, but the entrepreneur takes the time to ask you, so what have been some of the most exciting deals for you guys this year? What have been the spaces that you've been most active in? What has been the average check size? You know, what are the things that you most look for in entrepreneurs or teams? Or how do you guys like to get involved with companies? These are all questions that show that this is not someone who's just looking for a handout, that they're looking for the right investor, Great. that they can show interest in them. And so it's so important to actually have that articulated curiosity going into these meetings. You can have a back and forth dialogue and actually connect on a deeper level. Nice. You know, Ivan Meisner, the all-time king of, uh, of networking, he created BNI, Business Network International. Sure. He, he's fond of saying, you're born with... Uh, one mouth and two ears, and you need to use them in that proportion. Yeah. 
So let's let's keep going. This is like you've got some really, you know, gritty information here. So we, we, we're building a deck, right? And you're saying the the deck is really just to pique curiosity. You're not going to get a check from a deck, right? Now you enter into a conversation. You've you've said quite a few. You've given us quite a few granular tools there. Sure. To ask ask questions. Communicate the opportunity more than just the ask. Let's get on to closing because where you actually now, so you're not getting a no. You get the person's going okay, great, you know. Uh, and so I've heard lots of different variations of this. I mean, the most common phrase is "count me in," "I'm all in," you know, "I'm with you." That's that. Those are common phrases that people will use, but it doesn't necessarily. Or, or "I'm a big yes." There's, there's lots of variations on it. You know, even the more kind of hip uh, venture capitalists and, 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 uh, and, and entrepreneurs will talk about, you know, are you a fuck yeah, right? And so what I've seen is people will get to that point of I'm all in, I'm all yes, I'm fuck yeah, but we haven't yet got a check. And that's sure. where it can stall for weeks, uh, which is where, you know, the, the, the words are saying yes, but the actions haven't caught up. So yeah. that's a common place people get stuck. I'll use an analogy from Tribute. So my, my company, Tribute, uh, the way that our, our company works is that we help people to create these collaborative video montages. So imagine Arjuna, like I just told you about mine, Arjuna wakes up on his birthday video with 20 of his favorite people telling him why they love him. So the way this works is people upload a list of 20, 30 friends, and then those people all get reminded up to four times before the due date to submit their video. Um, what we've learned after giving 150,000 of these videos mm. is the importance of a deadline mm -hmm. because those people get four reminders. Mm -hmm. These are hundreds of thousands of people. So this is like a hefty amount of research. And what we found is that 80% of people will film their video on the day before or the day of. Mm -hmm. And those people will get reminded oftentimes months in advance but it is on the day before and the day of mm -hmm. is that people need a deadline to decide right is that on top of there's a deadline and then people also need momentum they mm -hmm. need to feel like they are a part of something that other people are a part of yeah. because no one wants to go first yeah. so here's that's how you the, can that's the key yeah yeah how do you create the facade of those two things mm -hmm. a deadline and of momentum and so with a deadline i'm going to give you the exact words that you can use here and so the words that you want to use, and if you're listening, you want to write this down, is that we are targeting a close of X date. And so what you say is you say we're targeting. Not that we're closing the round for sure in the state because that would be light. But if you want to say targeted, you can say whatever this time is. So if you have several weeks, if you have a month, anytime you're getting off with an investor, you can mention. So we're targeting a close of this date. We expect to have you know a couple of other people in. And so you say we're targeting a close of this date. And because now you set that targeted close, you can ask them, how long do you think you need to think about it? And then ask for, the, if they say, I don't know, then you would suggest, how about two weeks, a week before the due date? So now what you do is you get to follow up with them and you get to say, we're doing this in two weeks. You know, have you had time to think about whatever that is? And that's all under the facade of this targeted close. And what I have learned from investing is that the people who say no and those people who are on the fence will take up such a majority of your time for no fucking reason. Mm -hmm. It's like the people who are going to invest in your company for the most part, no. And it doesn't mean that you don't follow up with those people who are on the fence, who go back and forth. 
but you just have to understand that the likelihood of those people being the ones that come through, it's just not going to be your your target audience. And well, so, I think you just pin, you pinpointed something uh, earlier that nobody wants to be the first one. And so that's, that's yeah. what I'll talk about in Momentum. Yeah. So I talked about the aura of inevitability. And the way that so many people invest professionally is that there are a few people, I think there's crazy statistics, and I don't want to get it wrong, but if you Google what percentage of angel syndicates and venture capitalists make money, it's it's really not even the majority. Most of them fail. You just don't hear about them because they suck. Mm. There's just a few that do it really well, mm. and that's you know Sequoia and Excel and all these people at the top of the charts. And so for so many people, their investment strategy is, oh, we're just going to wait until smart people invest, and then we'll invest after them. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty standard strategy. Mm -hmm. And so when you are trying to get people to invest without that competent lead investor already coming in, which is where, again, so many people are at. How do we get those first investors? Um, the thing that we, we really want to talk to people about is we reframe an early opportunity, which is saying that, you know, it's like, because we are early right now, we're giving a discount on our valuation. And so you can frame it and say, it's like, I know that we are early, but in this smaller round, we've given a supreme, like a, a significant discount on our inevitable valuation for early investors. Mm -hmm. So you show them that this is something that they're getting a discount on for being an early mover. So you kind of take some of the harshness away from being that first mover mm -hmm. because you give them an immediate uh, reward mm -hmm. for being one of the first people to make that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on top of that, I think that just to get momentum of like even the, the conversation about, you know, people who are considering this right now, people who are coming in, it doesn't even necessarily have to be people who have invested, but I would always close my investment calls understanding like what are the three most significant uh, developments or things that are coming. And so you can create a facade that they're about to miss out on something. And so if you're saying, you know, we just got press coverage here, we just booked this client, we just got our new contract for $200,000, it's like we're expecting after all this stuff hits or after our next product goes live that we're going to close this like really quickly. And so we're excited to wrap this round up quickly so we can move back into build mode. Yeah. So you can put, again, a sense of urgency. You can show them some of the momentum that is happening. You get to lean back into that close there. But that's how you create some momentum without having a, a true lead investor that's there who's going to... Yeah, uh, so those are the things that you can do. It's when you do not have a lead investor, that's how you can show someone that they're being rewarded for mm. making an early decision. Yeah. It's how you can show them that there is momentum with the company. And when this continues, you're going to close this round really quickly, which is why it would make sense and why you want them to come in early. So you can get back to building this company and taking advantage of the opportunity that is available to you. Great. I'm uh, one, one more thing. actually. Yeah, go ahead. Um, make it as easy as possible for them to sign. When someone would tell me that they were interested, I would have documents in front of them on HelloSign or DocuSign within minutes. It was always a priority. So if you don't have your convertible notes, your, your investment documents already set up in an e-signed service, um, you, you need to do it immediately because, again, uh, you don't want to give people more time to go back and forth on this. When people would sign our investment documents, uh, it would be four signatures and some initials and clear instructions on how to how to debit their or how to wire us their money. Got it. So it needs to be super, super simple for them to do it.
If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy dropping by radicalbrilliance.com. We've got an ebook for you which explains the radical brilliance cycle, the way the cycle gets blocked, and the practices that best open up the cycle again. We also have five days of gifts and insights for you, delivered every day by email and video, which go much more deeply into the phases of the cycle, the ways that the cycle can become a kind of diagnosis of blocked brilliance, and a way to accurately find the right practice for each person. In addition, you'll receive a video about the single most important practice that we have determined affects brilliance, and another video about everyone's favorite topic, brilliant sex. It's all totally free, prepared for you as our guest. Please come to RadicalBrilliance.com. Register on the homepage and you'll receive the ebook right away. Then you'll be guided through the five days of videos to take you deeper into your own radical brilliance. So this has been great. So is there anything we missed? Because I think, you know, this is super granular information for people wanting to start a company. Is there, is there any big hurdle that we haven't covered. I'm still thinking about, let's just create a fictitious scenario for a moment, right? Somebody's got a great idea, great product, great service all lined up. You know, it's all, it's all been built. They've created their company. They're talking to a bunch of investors and they get stuck on every, everybody's waiting for everybody else. And I think that's the piece that I, we didn't completely cover is everyone's waiting, every investor's waiting for somebody else to go first. And so you get a lot of investors going, I will join this when it's, when it's going, but I'm not gonna be the first one to put money in. So how, what, what is the conversation to encourage the first person to go? Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was just kind of closing out with there of, you show them that there is a reward mm-hmm. financially for yeah. being that first investor. Right. So for the first person who was coming in, they were coming in on tribute at a $2 million valuation. And what I would say to them is, you know, we're doing this first round yeah. of $150,000 of friends and family round. And as soon as we raise this 150, it's like, that's immediately bumping up to 4 million, which yeah. is true for us. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And so what I would say is like, you know, we're talking to some other people who are also interested and I can't guarantee space in the round. Yeah. So you provide some scarcity. Mm-hmm. Then you're talking to other people. You can't guarantee space in the round. You only want to take 150. Um, so you again, show them that, okay, here's this targeted close. 50,000 you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah, the whatever number is in, whatever yeah. the number is insignificant. Um, so that you create scarcity mm-hmm. for the investor mm-hmm. as opposed to saying it's like, oh, we're raising $150,000 and we'll be doing that until we raise money and we'll, we'll take your money in whenever. But you want to say, we know we're only taking 150 in at this incredibly low valuation. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of benefit for people who are coming in now, which is you're definitely coming in early, but you're being rewarded for that with an incredibly low valuation. And then on top of that, so now they're basically, you're telling them, oh, you'd be smart to come in now because you're getting more money, uh, more, more of the company. 
then on top of that, what you're going to do is you're going to show the momentum of the company. So we just had these three major things happening. You know, we're anticipating a new contract or some significant increase in users. And so this should even go faster then. And then what you're also doing is you can say that it's like, I can't guarantee space in the round after one to 50. Um, and we're already talking to other people. So it's just, again, it's lighting a, a match into that. So this is something that they want to make a decision on. Awesome, man. So those would be the things you do there. And then to tie a bow on this, because, again, one thing we talked about is the idea that you're going to hear no from 90% of your investors, is to fundamentally reshape our relationship with no. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And it's it's so funny. It's like we, we spend so much of our life asking for things as kids and it's like just for us um and even when we're asking for things like throughout our lives and it's for other people's projects and things that we didn't really care about and so once we're asking for money for something that we really do believe in um it's important to just pause for a moment and to just look at how we are becoming fortune tellers and presuming mm -hmm. how other people feel when they say no. Mm -hmm. Because for a second, I want you to flip the roles. I want you to think about the last time somebody asked you for something and you weren't able to give them what they requested. Were you upset at the other person? Were you frustrated at them? Mm. No. Mm. You were probably felt bad that you couldn't give them what they wanted. All right. And for some reason, we project this insecurity that our asking other people is going to make them uncomfortable, that it's going to make them feel weird about us. So we presume that, and that's what keeps us from asking for something, which is, again, it's that when we are not asking for something, when we're inviting someone to something cool and money is the vehicle of doing it, they should be honored. Right. Right. And if they can say no, if it's a friend, what I always say to friends is I wanted to invite you to this and absolutely no pressure to get involved. Right. But it's again, it's you're excited about it. If you're not excited about it, stop fucking doing it. But so it's we need to reshape our relationship with no. And again, like every single no that I got, it's like I understand that it was a step forward because it meant that I was not spending time on that person anymore. And now I had more time to find the next person. What do you think about the idea when you if you do get a no from an investor that you can say, great, you know, I, that's really good. We're clear about that. Now, what advice would you give me? about how this pitch could be better or how, the, how I could have conducted the conversation. So you, you ask, if they give you a no, you ask them for some counseling on how to do it better with somebody I've, else. I've gotten investors that way. Yeah. Is I've, every single person that I talk to, it's, you know, it's the idea that when someone says no, hmm. it's don't interpret that, that it's just a, a no, they don't believe in you. Right. It's just not a fit for them. Right. You know, maybe their yeah. thesis and what they move. And so it's the idea of, you know, thank you so much for your time. It's like, um, is there anything that you would need to see for this to be a yes? Anytime someone says yes, tell them that, which is that's the immediate reaction to no. It's like, is there anything specific that you would need to see for this to be a yes? Great, man. And just right Good. now, it's like I, I'm talking to one of the wealthiest, you know, e-commerce billionaires in China. And like when I got a no from him. He, I said... To tribute. For tribute. And mm -hmm. I was like, what would you need to see? Mm -hmm. And he said exactly what he needs to see with his app. And so now, to one of the wealthiest e-commerce billionaires in China, 
as soon as we have our mobile app live and some specific metrics, I'm going back out to him mm-hmm. because then I get to say, Hey, here's when you said that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so it's a great question and it's true. It's like anytime you see no, it's thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you would like to see that would make it a yes? Or is there anyone else, you know, that might be interested and, you know, if it's a product or if it's a service, one of the things that I would always say is like, if there's anyone you think would be interested, you know, I'd love to send them a free tribute. And then for you, if it's like, you know, I'd love to send them a free product. Yeah. Like whatever it is of just offering something that's free there is, uh, you know, it's definitely just an easy thing that you can do. So it's a great question, but yeah, it's so reframing. No, is, is such a, such a big part of it of like, if you're making no mean anything before asking, it's you're you're a fortune teller like you think you can predict the future of you know what when it comes to eliminating these types of limiting beliefs something that was honestly helpful for me was was byron katie's framework called the work and it yeah you say you know anytime let's say that you're getting ready to go in and, and ask a friend for money which like traditionally one of the more uncomfortable situations or someone that you have a working relationship with um, and so if I'm going to ask one of my best guy friends for money and before I'm asking him, I'm telling myself, I feel bad. I feel guilty about it. I feel unsure how this is going to make him feel. And so Byron Cade would say, okay, so like, what is the, what is the fear? And the fear is that I'm going to make my friend uncomfortable. Uh, he's going to feel like I am like only his friend for his money, like any of those things. And then she'd say, okay, so number one, is that thought true? And I'd say, I don't know. And then she'd say, number two, can you absolutely know that this thought is true, that you're going to make your friend uncomfortable and that he thinks that you're only his friend for his money? I can't 100% know that's true. And so then the third would say, how do you act when you accept this is true? And this is so important for entrepreneurs is that when you dissect the fear that you're bringing into it, so how do I act when I accept the thought that I'm making him uncomfortable and like I'm only his friend for his money? I go in timid. I go in self-conscious. So now I'm exuding a nervous energy that's not going to give this person confidence and I'm going to go out here and build a $100 million company. So this made-up thing in my head is already making me act in this undesired fashion. And then the fourth would be asking yourself, could the opposite be true? Could he actually just invest and really love what I'm doing? Could he be honored that I invited him? Hmm. Yeah, hmm. but I don't know. Hmm. But the the opposite could be true. And I just ask myself again of like, you know, who would I be without this thought? And I was like, well, I'd just go in in social flow, talking about what I want to know, asking the questions that I want to know. And um, and I think that, again, so it's it's so important to to not make no anything other than a fucking important ingredient in the recipe of success brilliant yeah thanks so much for taking time Dilly man it's awesome to be with you love to be staying in your house very fun make make yourself at home (laughs) thank you you got all sorts of poofs and and and, uh, if somebody wants to go deeper with you what are the opportunities they they can go to tribute and check out tribute yes so they can go to tribute.co if they want to create a tribute dot co dot co dot co okay not Not dot com there's a newspaper that has existed for many many years that is not giving up their domain so we're trapped with the dot co but we'll take it Uh, if anyone is interested 
interested in social flow and understanding the fundamental rules of interpersonal dynamics and really just trusting your instincts to succeed with people. Uh, it's just ITS. It's andrewhorn.com. Yeah. Um, and actually just did a course on basically how to get a yes. And it's all about fundraising. So I go deeper in a lot of the techniques that we talked about. There's a course so, where, uh, so that's on my website as well. You can see it. it's andrewhorn.com. Yeah. And if you go Brilliant. to kind of some of my services, you'll see that right in there. Sweet. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so anyone who's interested in, just being themselves and doing the things they want to do in the world and building relationships that matter. Do you do consulting with entrepreneurs who want to fundraise? I do. So yeah. I work with uh, high-level entrepreneurs on things like TED Talks, on investor presentations. And so if any of you are working on a project or have a very important presentation coming up and you want someone to help you really kind of hone in on that legacy message, what you really want to say so you can deliver it powerfully and get things done, I uh, would love to chat with you as well. Brilliant, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Great. Well, that was a wonderful conversation to have with Andrew at his home in Brooklyn, New York. And now over to you. I want to ask you, what would be, as you know, if if you've been following this podcast, we always, at the end, we always turn this into something you can integrate into your own life. So this is not just passive consumption, getting inspired by listening. It's an invitation to play it forward and to make it real in your own life. So what would be an example for you of some outcome that you would like to create that involves interaction with other people, but that gets blocked in the same way that Andrew was talking about through, um, through lack of social flow. And I think it would be a great step towards opening social flow around your outcome to share it with us, to share it with me and the other listeners on this podcast. You can go to radicalbrilliance.com forward slash podcast. You can type in there. Here's the outcome that I'm looking for. It may not be raising money for an entrepreneurial venture, maybe something else, but here's the outcome that I want to create, but I always get tense when it comes time to ask for it. And there's a, there's a block of social flow. Uh, or you can go to facebook.com forward slash radical brilliance, scroll down to where you find this particular podcast announced and let us know where would you like to increase social flow to create a particular outcome, which is of benefit to you and to everybody else. I look forward to welcome you back in our next episode in a week's time.